Hi, and welcome to the ninth class session of the Fairy and Fantasy class. Today, we look at the second half of the wedding of Sir Gawain and Dame Ragnall, as Arthur is saved from destruction, and his repulsive new friend comes around for her reward. Hello. So, okay, so uh, last time... Where did we get up to last time? We got up to the, uh, the answer that Dame Ragnall gives to Arthur, right? So I think we were about ready for our second meeting with... with... Mr. Summer Day, I love it when he calls him Sir Gromer. It's like, so, Sir Dude, <laughs> Sir Person, um, I, how, does, how, does, how does Gromer respond? What do we learn from, uh, from I, Gromer, I call him. You know, he and I are on first name, uh, a first name basis. Uh, yeah, what, what do we learn from Mr. Summer Day? What's Mr. Summerday's reaction when Arthur gives him the right... Well, I love how he first hands him the books, right? <laughs> well, well, I have these two books, right? So he gives him both his book and Gawain's book. And, he, and he, he studiously looks through both of the books, right? No, these are good books. However, neither one of them contains the right answer. You are dead meat. And then Arthur gives the, of course, correct answer, which he's been holding back. And what, is, what, is, what does Mr. Summerday do? He says, my sister told you, didn't she? Yeah, he's mad. He's mad. Turns out that Dame Ragnall of the epic ugliness is his sister. Uh, and he knows that it must have been her who gave it away. Uh, we'll come back to this relationship because this is, that is exactly the relationship between uh, Gromer Summerjour and Dame Ragnall and his involvement in the whole Ragnall situation. Um, I think it's a little bit puzzling, um, but I want to come back to. Uh, but I want to spend too much time with that. I want to spend most of our time on Ragnall and Gawain. Um, but I do want to make sure just to sort of note that in passing and then come back to it. What do we see in Ragnall's actions from the time when Arthur emerges from the woods, having given her <laughs> correct answer uh, to her brother, through the wedding night? I want to save what happens in bed until later, and I want to talk about everything leading up to it first. Robbie, what do you notice? She really wanted everybody to see her, like come in and see the wedding and stuff. She wanted to be noticed, not like it. Yeah, that is that by far the most strongly emphasized thing that the poem hits on, right? That she is not only given lots of opportunities for this to be quiet, um, but many people attempt to hush this up. Notice how she's quite proactive about this, Arthur doesn't even, even have a chance to suggest, hey, maybe we should keep this quiet before she, she objects to that. Um, look, at, look at how this works. Here I'm thinking of right around line, line 500. It's soon after she meets Arthur. Again, it's interesting because he's barely said anything. He says, line 504, 503. No, laddie, that he you he shall not file. I promise I'll, I'll, I'll keep up my, you know, my end of the bargain that we made. So ye will be ruled be me kunsaila. Your will then shall ye have. He hasn't even said what his advice is going to you know, I, I, I will not renege on you. Um, and I promise I won't fail you if, you if you abide by my counsel, by my advice. So he's only said, I'd like to place a condition on that, or I, I, I would like you to abide by my suggestions for how this should play out. He hasn't even said how. But she immediately responds to that. Nay, Sir King, new Wally, not so. Openly he will be wedded, or he part they fro, el shama will ye have. She knows what he's going to suggest. He's going to sneak her into town. Uh, and have a private wedding or something. Or maybe even say, you wait here and I'll send Gawain out and then no one ever need know. But he doesn't even have to say it. She anticipates it. No, no. No, I'm riding back with you right now. And nobody knows why she's riding back with him. Remember, he wasn't supposed to tell anybody about this and he only told Sir Gawain. So Sir Gawain is the only one who knows anything about any of this. Even that he had the meeting with Gromer Sommerjour in the first place. So no one knows his life was in danger, and certainly no, no one knows anything about the terms of its saving. Who else tries to uh, 
Hush this up. Guinevere does. Guinevere, who again, remember, is completely ignorant about this. All she knows is her husband has returned from the woods with this really remarkably ugly woman who is insisting on immediately holding a public wedding with Sir Gawain, which, for some reason, totally unknown to her, both Arthur and Gawain seem to be going along with. Um, So she urges her, can we have a quiet wedding? Notice there are several stages here. Do you notice there's sort of the formal stages that they go through leading up to the wedding? Notice the rituals that are performed. What happens? Because there's several opportunities to kind of reduce the embarrassment here. First, her arrival in court. No, no, no. I want to come in with you while everybody's watching. And then she had make sure that right in front of all the knights, Sir Gawain is brought in. <coughs> right? I want this <coughs> joyful first meeting between Sir Gawain and his future bride to be held in public in front of everybody. That's the first stage. And right there and then, they have, a, they have an engagement ritual. right? They're going to plight their troth to each other there. It's not a wedding, but they're going to have a public engagement on the spot. And then what happens? I think it's one of your that you suggest that they get married before Mass when the church is pretty empty. <laughs> yes. like, no, we're waiting until after Mass when everyone is there. <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, let's, let's hold the wedding, you know, at like, I don't know, five in the morning, maybe. That way it might be a good time for this wedding. Maybe three in the morning, I don't know. Um, yeah, she wants to have it quietly. Not only has da- does Dame Ragnall insist on waiting until after high mass, but she also insists on having the upcoming wedding announced everywhere, right? It's, it's cried across the land. Hey, everybody come and see... Sir Gawain, Mary, Dame Ragnall. And you notice the, the sort of insertions, the occasional digressions to, oh, I think I forgot to mention an aspect of her ugliness. Did I mention she has tusks? <laughs> Let's talk about her tusks for like six lines. And one goes up and one goes down. I mean, it just keeps, uh, I, just, I, I love the sort of digressions. Uh, and, and in part, of course, one of, one of the effects of that is really interesting. Uh, that is, we're kind of reminded, just in case, because now the description is for us a little while back, right? But one of the reasons that we get, it seems, this, these renewed descriptions is that we're sort of being reminded, you know, people like Guinevere and the other members of the court are seeing her for the first time, right? So we want to kind of recapture a little bit of that spirit of, like, being shocked at the loathliness of Dame Regnal afresh. So we indulge ourselves in some new description, and after the wedding, we would, the feast, yes, we would like to kind of go up, you know, again, please, can we, maybe we'll just do it, no, 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 we're going to have a high feast, and she's going to sit up on the dais at the head of the table and eat record quantities of food, just absolutely shoving her enormous tusky mouth the entire time. And we're actually given, like, the list of things that she manages to consume, and everyone is not only repelled, but actually kind of impressed, right? <laughs> how, much she, how much she puts down. Unbelievable. But again, throughout, she is insisting on public display. Now, this is the point where we have, we are told, a page missing from the manuscript. So we kind of jump here. And of the stuff that we jumped, of course, we don't know exactly what is in the missing page. But there's one thing at least that we can tell must have been on that page that we don't have anymore. She, when we pick up again, they're in bed. She is talking to him. And from what she says to him, we can tell something that he said before. Or at least have a, have a, we, we, can, we can deduce its general gist. What must he have said or done when they got into bed? How has he been to her so far? Arthur comes back with her and everyone's like, whoa, oh, God. And what's Gawain's response? He's never seen her, remember. What's his response? He hasn't um, gone back and said, no, I won't marry her. She's too hideous. He's kind of just silently gone along with everything. Good. I mean... We can imagine like several levels on which Gawain could have 
pulled back, right? He could have seen her and been like, whoa, okay, okay, when I made that agreement, like, I did not really fully appreciate the significance of this. It's off. He doesn't do that. He could even just say, like, all right, I'm going to go through with it, but I'm going to complain about it. But none of the recommendations that we keep this quiet come from him. He's not concerned. When he's called in to, 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 to make his engagement vows in front of the entire court, he doesn't hesitate. No, yeah, that's great. I'm cool with this. No problems. I will promise to marry her. We don't even see him making long faces and moping about. We get no evidence of resistance or reluctance from him at any point. But notice what she says to him in bed. Again, back when we resume the story after the missing leaf. So the missing leaf is right around as a, line 628. So we resume with her speech on what is called 629, though it is certainly not line 629 of the poem. Ah, Sir Gowan. Sin I have you wed, show me your courtesy in bed. With reet it may not be denied. I wees a Sir Gawain, the laddie said, and I were fair, ye will do another bride, but of wedlock ye tak no head. What happened? What happened in that page? Not what happened. Yeah, he apparently did not... We don't know if he said something expressing his reluctance. We don't know if he just betrayed his reluctance through lack of enthusiasm, but it's quite clear. She is urging him to fulfill his duty as her husband. With rite it may not be denied. That is true. It is a legal right. You are legally obligated to consummate your marriage with your wife. Your wife can, in <laughs> fact, insist upon the marriage debt, the payment of the marriage debt. This is, this is one of the fun medieval expressions to describe this. Um, she actually is correct in saying that she has an actual right, an actual legal right for him to sleep with her since they're now married. She can demand that, and she is. And he seems to be showing... I don't know if he said something. I don't know if he's just obviously not excited about this, but she makes it very clear that she is responding to something that he has done or said. And if, and I were fire, ye will do another bride. You would, uh, you'd be approaching this differently if I were beautiful, shows that he has betrayed his uh, unhappiness about this. So we have had at least a small instance of going finally not being totally okay with what's going on here. His response? What do we see? He relents yet again, immediately. Yeah. It's only a small lapse. You know, he, 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 this is not a, all right, like, I've put up with it until now, but I just can't, no, no, I, I'm done. That's clearly not what Colleen is saying. He, he, he apologizes. He apologizes. <laughs> Let's say, huye conspeda. Uh, that's a funny line. But anyway, Sir Gawain says, a waldo more than for to kiss it. She, uh, she said, at least kiss me. At least kiss me. And his response is, no, 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 no. I'll do more than kiss you. It will do more for to kiss her than for to kiss her. And God before he turned him heruntila. And with, one can imagine, a deep breath in stealing himself, he turns towards his new wife, preparing to do more than the, than the requested kissing. And this is when Mirabile Dictu he finds that she is, in fact, the most beautiful creature he has ever seen. <laughs> and I love his response. What are ye? <laughs> right. he's, notice he's not just asking, who are you? But what are you? Holy cow, wait a second. What just happened here? What are you? 
I am your wife, securely. Query a so unkinda. And now, no, she's sort of taking the same complaint she's made before and now teasing him with it. It is now not only uncourteous for him to be turning away from his wife in their marriage bed, it is now also, she is suggesting, unkinda, which means unnatural. The word kinda means nature in Middle English. Um, so to be unkinda is not just to be unkind in the modern sense. It's to be unnatural, to go against the course of nature. We are ye so unkinda. It's unnatural for you to be so reluctant. And, of course, he now agrees. Ah, laddie, I'm to blama. Oh, my bad. <laughs> I am so sorry. Now, what does she do? Here we come to the crucial moment of the entire story. What does she say? Yeah, Ben? Eventually she asks whether he would rather she be beautiful during the day or at night. She gives him a choice. You know, the whole story pivots around this choice. This is, this is the moment that everything has been leading to. This is this choice. You know, this is, this is a story. This is a retelling of a, a story which is retold in many traditions. There are many kind of different versions of it. This is the core of this whole story. Here's your choice. And what are the terms of the choice? I want to make sure we get this exactly right. What is he choosing between? Whether or not by day or by night she'll be um, ugly, and apparently she says it's up to him. Right. He can either have her beautiful at night for his private enjoyment, but foul during the day in all menesicht, right? Or beautiful during the day in front of everybody and enormously ugly by night. Now, what's at stake here? And how can we see? She gives some cues. What's at stake in this choice? What's he, what's he, what's he choosing between, exactly? Okay? Uh, that if she's beautiful by day, everyone will be able to see that she's really beautiful. And that um, Gawain won't be shamed about it, I guess, or embarrassed of her. Yes. Good. Uh, the, the, the choice between the day and the night is clearly between public and private enjoyment, right? Between his honor and his worship, this is a word that gets used a lot. That is his reputation among other people. I mean, everyone was pretty disgusted by her and the wedding and the feast afterwards and everything. Um, And doubtless everybody felt bad for Gawain, but this is... This is not going to help his reputation. And if every day he has to go through that, I mean, this weird, I, we, again, it's interesting we get nothing from Gawain during that whole stretch. But given everybody else's response, can we please do this out of the way? Is there any way we can take the spotlight off of this? Shows that everybody else is embarrassed by this. Is he going to have to endure this every day for the rest of his life? He can choose not to, Right? So either it's his honor during the day or his pleasure, his private pleasure in his marriage, in his marriage bed, at night. Now, what should we be thinking about? What should we be thinking about when, it was, you know, when he's sort of debating, hmm, which way should I go? Do we have any way of telling which way he should go? Marta? Um, I was kind of thinking of Sir Lampfall, how he had the, the private enjoyment of Triamore at night, but um, not the public pleasure of having her with him during the day. Good. I, th- those two are pretty closely parallel. Right now, uh, it's different. Gawain is putting, being put in a more, much more conspicuous position than Lampfall was, right? I mean, it's one thing to say, pretend you don't have a lady at all, right? Um, and we see that this opens him ultimately to like the accusation of being a pedophile, but uh, or at least the implicit one in, in Thomas Chester's version. But here, 
it's, it's more over the top, but I agree. We see that, 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 that sort of privacy. Triamor is going to be his private lady anytime in, you know, in, in, when he's alone, she will come to him and they can, and they can be together. So yeah, that's, that's, that's closely parallel. So therefore, that, that's what he should choose. That seems logical. That seems plausible. Do like landfall. It does seem, of the two, that seems the writer one, if that makes sense, right? It would seem a little bit more, you know, to say like, okay, what do I really value? I really value what other people think of me. Whereas if you could, you could argue that by choosing her to be fair at night, what he's valuing is them together. I, I want to I enjoy being with you in private. And I don't care what everybody else thinks. So long as, you know, I'm happy and we're happy. I, you know, like during the day, everyone can make fun of me. I don't care. You could kind of put it that way, right? Make it seem kind of self-sacrificing to make that choice. But that isn't where he goes. Where does he go? Well, first, there's a lot of hemming and hawing, right? Golly, this is a difficult decision. I can see very strong arguments for both sides, very compelling ones. I don't know what to do. So what does he do? Dory? Yeah. You choose for me. You choose for me. And look at how he says it. So this stanza, this is uh, on line 667. Alas, said Gawain, the choice is hard. To chase the best, it is froward. Where choice that he chase? To have you fire on nichtes and no more, that will grave me heart rigsora, and me worship shall he laser. My reputation would be shot. And if he desire on dies to have you fire, then on nichtes he shall have a simple repire. No fine will he chose the best. He know what in this world what he shall sire. But though as ye list newer, me ladi gaia, the choice he put in your fist, even as ye wola, he put it in your hand. Laws me when ye list, for I am bond, he put the choice in you. Both body and goddess, heart and every dale, is all your own, for to be and seller that mahi God of you. Especially I want to pay attention to the, the first half of that second stanza that I just read there. He kind of goes on talking. He says, I'm going to let you choose. And then he keeps talking. When he keeps talking, what does he emphasize? That he's bound to her. Yeah, it's very interesting. The way that he defines this choice is you choose what to do with me. I am bound to you. This is the way that he understood this deal from the beginning. If she saves Arthur's life, he agrees to bind himself to her. Yes, I will do what she wants of me. Marry her? Yes, okay. I promise to do that. And we see her taking advantage of it in those terms, right? Do your duty by me in the marriage bed. Do what you have to do. She's in control. There. And he recognizes that. Laws may win ye list for I am bond is a really interesting line there. This is not a question of let me choose which I think would be best for me or which I would like better, but he says, I'm bound to you completely. Either one of these is a benefit that he didn't expect. He took her ugly with no expectation that she was going to become unugly even part of the time. And remember, this all started when he was bracing himself to turn around and pay the marriage debt to her in her ugly form. So he is saying, look, anything that you give me, whichever way you do it, is more than I could have expected. I was completely bound. Any way you do this is loosing me some, a little bit. You're going to loose me half the time from this 
constraint from this sort of nightmare that I was in, you choose. It's up to you. I am your servant. Both body and gold is heart and every day is all your own. For to be and sell, that's strong language. You, you can buy and sell me as you like. Body, soul, heart, all of it. It's yours. My goods, everything. What, of course, should we be remembering? The answer to the question, of course. Gawain is getting it exactly right. This is what all women most desire, according to Dame Ragno. To have this kind of sovereignty, this kind of mastery over the manliest of men. And he's granted it to her. I am completely under your control. Do with me as you like. And what does she do in response? I'll give you both. I'll be beautiful full time. Is that what has happened? I will grant you beauty full time? After this, we learned that actually wasn't the situation. Taylor? Yeah, I was just about to explain that there was uh, stuff that had been put on her through necromancy, apparently. <laughs> Negromancy is a, a much more vague Middle English word. Um, it doesn't just, it has nothing to do with death necessarily uh, in that same way. Yeah? Earlier today, I don't know if you expected that uh, it, it, it translates as necromancy might be incorrect. Maybe it's supposed to just be black magic since that's the black word that looks like there is. Negromancy, yeah, yeah. Um, this is the, the, one of the other times that this word is used very notably uh, is in the beginning of Maori. Uh, when Morgan Le Fay, Arthur's younger half-sister, is sent off to a convent school um, at a nunnery where they teach her nigromancy, among other things, um, which just shows you have to really thoroughly check out your children's schools before you just send them off to boarding school because you know, what, what, what do they teach them in these convent schools these days? Nigromancy, apparently, in some cases. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I, I agree. I certainly don't think it, necro is what we're talking about here. Um, necromancy literally uh, means divination by the dead. That is, like, to conjure spirits in order to, get, to learn information from them, from the spirits of the dead. We see necromancy happening in its, uh, in its literal form, for instance, in the Old Testament, when King Saul... Uh, goes to the witch of Endor, who conjures up the spirit of the prophet Samuel uh, in order to ask him questions uh, and to gain information from him. But of course, this is the prophet Samuel who yells at King Saul again, like he used to do when he was alive. Uh, You shouldn't be doing this. Uh, As of course, King Saul himself, even King Saul, had passed laws against necromancy. Um, Anyway, but see, I, I don't think that that's what we're talking about here exactly. But it's clearly magic, and I agree it's definitely shady. Um, Black magic, I do think, is a far better translation than necromancy here, literally. Um, But anyway, by magic, she has a, apparently she has a some kind of sorceress stepmother who has put this spell on her, this curse on her, to make her ugly. So, therefore, what has just happened? which is, of course, especially interesting and conspicuous in light of the language Gawain has just been using, right? I am bound. Loose me as you will. But, of course, it's her who's being loosed from the spell. Her beauty is not a piece of generosity doled out by her to him and her saying, in reward for your choice, I'm now going to give you full-time beauty. I'm going to increase that gift, right? But rather, she is being given the gift, Her beauty is her real self. And the ugliness, which always looked a little bit too extreme to be entirely natural, turns out to, 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 that was the binding from which she is now being loosed. So we have this, this really beautiful sort of mirroring 
And what, and what is the upshot of this? What's the, what, is the, what is the ending for Sir Gawain? And for her? What do we see from her after this? One part that I thought was really funny is King Arthur comes up and he's like, I'm going to rescue them. And then, like, really beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it's... I, King Arthur's response is really funny. Like, they, they don't get up for a really long time. I don't, you know, it's, it's late in the morning, and King Arthur's like, oh my gosh, Gawain is probably dead. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, you know, Guinevere has very plausibly suspected, you know, she was probably a demon all along. She's probably a feigned. Uh, and, you know, in the night, she, we're going to go in there, and it's going to be this horrific scene of, like, you know, poor Gawain dismembered all over the place, and... Like, you know, we have given him, we have, like, you know, given him to this fiend to torture to death overnight. This is the horrible scene that they expect. Uh, and, you know, so he's knocking on the door. Gawain, Gawain, are you okay? And Gawain is like, yes, <laughs> I am okay. <laughs> and, uh, and, and does that. And, but the, 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 the really funny thing, too, is Gawain's theatrical setting up of this. Right? I mean, he's done this on purpose. She wants to get up first thing in the morning. He's like, no, 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 let's stay in bed. Let's stay in bed. This will be great. Like, he suspects they're going to do this. Right? And then he arranges, you know, and he, 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 he opens the door dramatically. Ta-da! You know? It's, it's, uh, it's very funny. Yeah. As she promises to be obedient to him. She promises to be completely obedient to him in everything. And I want to look at um, I want to look at that language there again, just like we looked at the previous language, because I think they're interesting to look at together. This is line 781. Therefore, Curtes Knicht and Hendgawen shall e never wrath they certain that promise new hair imaka. Wheel is that he live, he shall be obeisant. To God above, he shall it warrant, and never with you to do battle. I promise never to fight with you. I will always be obedient. I will never make you angry. What's interesting about this? I mean, on the one hand, it's like, okay, they live happily ever after. Like, I can take that. I mean, that seems like a perfectly fine ending to a fairy story, right? And going, well, they lived happily, well, okay, temporarily. But we'll get back to that. Uh, but, but She seems to be pledging the same thing that she wanted from Gawain, which I think is interesting that she pledges it after he does. It's required that he be the initiator of this bondage. Yeah, yeah, it's just <laughs> Bondage makes it sound so sketchy, but yes, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, I, yeah, no, no, but uh, yes, she is, having established what women most want is to have complete control over their husbands, howsoever manly they be, and he gives it to her, all that I am and all that I have is yours to buy and sell, in response she says, I will be obedient to you. I'll never make you angry. I'll never argue with you. Is she... Is this a change? Is this a switch? How do we understand this? I feel like there's an element of um, her being able to... Since Gwen has done all that he has up until this point, and she's now finally revealing all of the beauty and all that stuff... I think she's finally like at a point where she feels comfortable enough to say that to him and know that um, it will be reciprocated in their relationship. The, in this sense, I think we can see, um, as Christine was saying, that like, his submission was like a prerequisite to this, right? Um, once he has shown that he is willing to do that, once he, sees, once he shows that he will conceive of their relationship in those terms, then she is okay with, with reciprocating that. Yeah. Seems like she wouldn't have cause to be disobedient to him or to make him angry, provided that he's holding up his end, like he said he would. Yeah. See, it is possible to take this... We could take this in several different directions if we wanted to, right? We could be a little bit cynical about it, right? 
That is, we could easily see her saying, yeah, well, uh, you know, if you promise to obey me all the time, um, you know, I'll always be fine with that, right? We will never have any fights because you will always do what I say. And therefore, we'll always be happy. Um, You could say that. You could say that. I'm not sure her tone really sort of justifies that. It seems like all of the... We see her being very, very authoritative, very assertive, both in her speech towards him and in her speech towards everybody else, towards Arthur, towards Guinevere, right, all the way through. She was insisting on what she wanted. to. She doesn't talk that way post-transformation. Um, and it doesn't... So I'm not sure that that, that, quite f- that, that that kind of cynical tone quite fits. But I agree, whether we choose to sort of take it cynically or not, um, uh, that is, um, again, we, we could take it cynically to say, we will never fight if you do always do everything that I tell you. Um, but I don't think that we have to. Go ahead, go ahead. Um, it was more along the lines of, as long as he has her best interests at heart, then they aren't going to have cause to fight. And that's what she's pointing out. Not so much that you're now in my thrall, so there's not going to be any conflict between us. Right, right. So long as you don't attempt to rebel. Yes, yeah, yeah. Good. Liz? Um, where I got, I kind of got to the original thing she said about, like, what we want is sovereignty. Yeah. Once he gave it to her, yeah, I mean, I think that we can. The thing that I think is important that I want to keep in mind, in part because, of course, I'm thinking of the story we're going to be reading next. Next, we're moving to Chaucer's version of this story. He, you know, he includes his retelling uh, of this same thing uh, in the Canterbury Tales, and that's what we're going to be do- going to next. Um, so I sort of have Chaucer in mind, and therefore, because of what we're going to see Chaucer do, want to really emphasize the terms both of the correct answer and of his submission both emphasize the woman's power over the man. She says what women most want is to have control over him, no matter how manly and fierce he is, She wants to have control. And he says, I am completely in your power. He renders her choosing as do to me whatever you choose to do to me. Okay? Um, Now, that doesn't mean I disagree with you, as I do. Um, And I think that we can see it that way, that once he has given up power, then, in a sense, she can give it back to him. Um, Though I'm not... Yeah, though it's not entirely clear that that necessarily is completely what's happening. But yes, um, she's not going to use the power that he's given her. That might be another way to put it, right? You know, he says, you have complete dominion over me. And she says, no, that's okay. You know, I'm never going to make you upset. I'm never going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to abuse that power. I'm not going to abuse that position. What do you think about the end of the story? Well, before we get to the very end, what about Sir Gromer Sommerjour, her brother? She makes a reference to him at the end. What does she say about him at the end? Mac? Well, she basically uh, makes Arthur promise to be the court and not go. Good. Yeah, there are sort of two things that if, if Arthur could go after him because of what he did to Arthur in the woods. But of course, also remember there's the initial wrong that Sir Gromer accused him of, right? Um, but yeah, she seems to say, you know, please, please don't, go after, don't go after my brother. So she <laughs> speaks for him to protect him. What's his involvement in this whole thing? Yeah, Dory? Well, I think he was just trying to protect his sister, trying to, like, he possibly knew about the curse as well as the front offer in the first, in the first place. He wanted to see the king that maybe helped him move it. But he couldn't go, like, hands on knees, begging, please help my sister, please help my sister. Yeah, because he's probably going to laugh. As a knight, he can't just do that. So he may have to challenge her. I'll take that off, being a commander, if you want to want. 
but he seems so angry when, he, when Arthur has the right answer. See, this is tricky. Wait, let's back up one step further. Because what exactly are the terms? We've sort of passed lightly over the fact she was cursed with this ugliness by her stepmother. Yeah, that's true. But what are the terms, what are the exact terms under which she can get free? Do you remember? Okay. That she has to marry the best knight in the kingdom, the best man in the kingdom, in the public eye, and that he has to give her sovereignty. Yeah. Everything that happened had to happen in order for her. To, you know, Gawain has filled all of the things, but she goes back and says, all of this is, this is why she insisted on the public, uh, this is why she, she said, I have to marry Gawain. This is why she married Gawain in the way that she did. And then this is why she puts that choice to him at the last. Yeah, Will? I mean, mean, it seems, if they're both fairies, then it seems pretty likely that they orchestrated the whole thing just so that they could free the curse. (laughs) Right, she she certainly has. She openly has. Um, With him, it's less certain. Again, I want to look at... I think the passage is worth reading. This is go back to uh, to line 691. This is her... uh, her nigromancy here. For I was shapen be nigromancy, with, with me stepdama, God have on her mercy, and be enchantment, and should have been otherwise understood, even till the best of England had wedded me, had wedded me verament, and also he should give me the sovereignty of all his body and goddess securely. Thus was he deformed. And thou, Sir Knecht, Curtis Gawain, has given me the sovereignty certain that I will, that will not wrath, but will not wrath the early ne later. Uh, you're not going to regret that sooner or later, having done to me what you've done to me. So notice that even till, till the best of England had wedded me truly, this is why she insists on all of the rituals being undertaken, because if they had not been publicly betrothed and had not let cry it across the land and had not been married in front of lots and lots of witnesses, one could possibly argue that they were not actually formally truly married, right? So she makes absolutely no, no, uh, uh, no risk with that. And also, Heschel gave me the sovereignty of all his body and his goods. So he has to not only truly marry me, but also completely submit himself to me. Now here, the thing which has already sort of plainly uh, uh, been underlying the observations that you've been making about this, clearly the quest and the answer seems to be a setup to this, since it relates so directly. Let me plant that idea of uh, the man submitting himself completely to the woman, because that's what has to happen, right? So we can see that, in fact, the previous quest, which was the quest to achieve this impossible piece of information, was only one small part of the impossible task that had been laid on her in order to free herself from the enchantment, which we can see is a much bigger problem. You shall remain the ugliest human being in the world until such time when, as the ugliest person in the world, you convinced the greatest knight in England to marry you truly and submit himself entirely to you which perhaps a knight would be willing to do for the most beautiful woman in the land, but probably not for the ugliest woman in the land. So she plainly has been working to orchestrate this outcome. Was her brother in on it? In light of all, I mean, looking through all of this? Well, it's really the only way we can explain uh, Sir Grover Stoker Brewer's action about, you know, just resorting to, well, his brothers who weren't there, and they never made sense. Okay. I feel like there's kind of always some, like, buried plan underlying these kind of stories, and usually you only get a glimpse of it, you know, like, we still have no idea what the buried plan of paper is. And, but here we kind of get, like, a little idea of what's going on underneath everything. They can't be said explicitly because that's not how these stories go. Right, right. And it's interesting. Here we, we kind of roll back the, uh, the, the question of motives 
to a step further behind, right? Before we had, you know, the sort of magical fairy people interacting with humans. We didn't know directly why they did it. Here we're told why. Oh, here's why we did these things to you, because I was under this enchantment, and these are the terms through which it had to be broken. Of course, we're not told why she was put under that enchantment and what her stepmother had against her and why this exactly, and we don't know any of that backstory, right? So there's still mystery as to what exactly is going on and why are they doing what they're doing, but the immediate story is explained. Is she a fairy? Maybe? Maybe? Uh, I think considering you know, the richness of her palfrey and her mother's weird name. <laughs> right, right. And Right, she's also the most beautiful thing you've ever seen uh, afterwards. Certainly, her, how much more beautiful she is than Guinevere, though nobody seems to mind that this time, uh, including Guinevere, who is no longer horrible. Um, anyway, so the, the fact that she's now the most beautiful, and of course she's still even, you know, there's that wonderful description, having returned again to these, you know, occasional digressions into her ugliness and, you know, her tusks and whatnot. Uh, we get the stanza about how beautiful her wedding dress is and how incredibly rich, and like, you know, Guinevere herself doesn't have any gowns like this. Um, now, now she's the complete fairy package, right? The most beautiful woman ever in the entire land, plus all of the riches and the, and the, and the, you know, the loveliness of her dress uh, and the wealth of her dress. So, so yeah, I, I agree. It still does kind of look, look sort of fishy. But it's not by her own magic. It, it's not sort of through her own magic or in her own magic that she was acting. Sort of n- not like Triamor in that way. Yeah. Which part of it are you wondering is a leap? Yeah, it's a different kind of manifestation of the magic. Um, no, there, 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 there are a bunch of romances that involve the fairies. Um, some of them connected together, like this is not the earliest of the, of the versions of this story, for instance. Um, it's not even 100% clear when this was written. Um, but no, there are, there are other versions of other stories. And The Loathly Lady, as I said, is a popular one. I alluded to one of the examples of this kind of thing earlier on that is the scene in Cratian's Percival where a, a, a very loathly hag shows up in order to give everybody advice um, and that seems to be a kind of a fairy moment uh, in the story there though very little is made of it and she doesn't end up being very important to that story um, although who knows that story was not finished that story is very not finished and uh, you know maybe that was going to be explained the Cratan is not enormously fond of going back and tying up loose ends. But um, anyway, who knows? But no, certainly that concept is there. Um, but I think the way that it's being integrated here is definitely, is definitely interesting. At the very end, they don't, in fact, live happily ever after. Right? This author does seem quite fond of tying up loose ends. What happens? She's gone after five years. She dies five years later. Yeah. So we have, in the end, she never grieved Sir Gawain, well, until she died, and then he grieved after that. <laughs> so she did die? Mm-hmm. It, doesn't it doesn't say she die. She said, it says that she spent five years in Yeah. Was she potentially bitten by a green sp- <laughs> This seems plausible. Did she take a nap under an imp tree? Can't rule it out. <laughs> it is possible. Um, uh, 
I agree with you that it's mysterious. I think her death is hinted at a little bit more than we're giving it credit for, though. In her life, she grieved him never. In her life, she never grieved him. Um, with again following upon his grief uh, after she's gone, um, you know, I, 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 th- I, I think the open-endedness of it is 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 certainly interesting in the in the uh, in the context. Marta? Um, yeah, I agree that it's open-ended, but I kind of I like to think that she died because um, he speaks kind of fondly of her, and I feel like if she had abandoned him, like Arthur would not say that she was. So, so fair. You know, like, people wouldn't speak so positively of her if she had just left. Yeah. It's, if she just vanished a surprisingly small... It's, it's made into a surprisingly small deal <laughs> in the end of this poem. Um, yeah, he's grieved, but nobody's like, well, that was unsettling, <laughs> right? Um, she was real nice, except when she just took off without a word and never came back. So yeah, this, I mean, it's like we get like the whole thing, like the whole Sir Orfeo situation, except no poem about it, right? Like, oh, well, she's gone. Anyway, moving on, next wife. I mean, that's, uh, it, I don't know, I don't know. Um, it is sufficiently mysterious to kind of leave questions, but it, that's, that, I think that's also... Marta, what was influencing me, especially to read that one line that way, in her life she grieved him uh, nevermore. Um, but maybe in her death she did. Um, but again, I, I'm perfectly happy to uh, see interest in the fact that he never explicitly said, we get no COD for, uh, you know, for, for Dame Ragno. Yeah, Mac? Maybe this is kind of rare and evil, it's not the continuity. Like it says, I think Elaine got married a bunch of times later, and they, they just don't have to talk about the, the myth with this wife that's supposedly still alive. Yeah, you're right, that certainly it is not every medieval romance that feels compelled to tie up things and make it consistent with other stories. Um, but certainly, Romances like this with Sir Gawain as the hero, though we're told this is actually not a Sir Gawain story. This is a King Arthur story. We're reminded of that at the end, right? But anyway, uh, romances with Sir Gawain uh, as, the, as the, 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 the main character were quite common, and he does marry other people and other ones. So yes, it is like we're, you know, we're leaving this open. If we just say that he was married to her for his whole life, then, then we're, we're cutting off maybe the story I want to tell tomorrow about Sir Gawain. Um, so yeah, I think we can possibly we can possibly read it that way. Okay, Chaucer's version next time. You will notice some differences, and of course, I'm going to want to be talking about to be focusing especially on those. All right. In the next class, we will discuss the first half of Chaucer's Wife of Bath's Tale. Don't forget about the audio version that I uploaded earlier. Chaucer is especially fun to read and listen to aloud. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.